electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. A familiar refrain lately, the NASDAQ is leading today's rally. In fact, the Dow's negative while the NASDAQ is up 1.5%. So is tech the place to be? One of our guests says yes, as long as it's resilient tech. What he means by that, what he's buying and what he's not. Plus, Europe's energy crisis. Countries are now being asked to ration nat gas. We're live on the ground in Germany for the latest and whether it could happen here next. And Tesla, United Airlines, and home builder DR Horton are all on deck with results. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on all three in today's earnings exchange. But first, over to that man, Dom Chu has our market numbers. I wish I could tell you that there was better news, but right now we're still positive. But we've lost some steam, and markedly so, Kelly. Here's what I'm going to talk about. The Dow Industrials are actually negative right now, down about 30 points. That's about one-tenth of one percent declines. We had strong gains for most of the morning. The S&P 500 is 39.55, so we're kind of creeping back up towards that 4,000 level, up about 19 points. That's half of 1%. That's still pretty solid, but to kind of put some context around where the trading range has been today, at the lows of the session, we were down roughly 14 handles, and then at the highs of the session, up about 38. So you can kind of see tilting a little bit more towards the highs, but generally in the middle of that range, so we've lost a little bit of steam. The composite index for the NASDAQ, 11,879. 165 points, 1.5% gains there. So we're going to see whether or not that momentum can find some direction one way or the other in the next hour or two here. One place we are watching, though, on this stock-specific side of things is what's happening between small caps and large caps. Now, over the course of this kind of month-to-date period in July, you can see they've been trading pretty closely to each other for the most part of this month here. But it's in the last couple of weeks that we've seen some real outperformance in those small cap stocks. So whether or not that's a better indicator for possibly better times ahead for the economy remains to be seen. But remember, in times of distress, Oftentimes, those large cap stocks, even if they go down, are better than the small caps. So it's something to watch there in terms of trend. And then cryptocurrencies. If you take a look at what's happening right now, we are still above the 23,000 mark for Bitcoin prices, up about $230 right now, 1% gains there, off session highs. Ether has actually now drifted slightly into negative territory, 1,560. And then Coinbase is up 11% today on this big rebound that we're seeing in crypto prices over the course of the last couple of weeks. And to put it in context for you, Kelly, if you look at a long-term chart of Bitcoin, we know it's lost about two-thirds of its value by now since the record highs that we've seen. Again, that's a big move down lower. But this bounce that you're seeing here is now up roughly 26% off the lows in just the last couple of weeks. And by the way, Ethereum prices are up double that amount. So whether or not there's some kind of a bullish move here, keep an eye on 25,000, Kelly. That level in Bitcoin prices represents the 50-day average price. 
If you get above there, some traders say there might be a change in sentiment around Bitcoin prices. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, a little bit of a change already, maybe. Dom, thank you very much. Energy shortages are quickly becoming the top global worry point, and Europe is ground zero. The continent on edge ahead of tomorrow's planned restart of the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline and over how much gas Putin might actually let flow. At the same time, European countries are now being asked to ration their nat gas consumption by 15 percent. And right now, nat gas prices are spiking, jumping nearly 6 percent just in the the past couple minutes. For the latest and the fallout, let's bring in our own Brian Sullivan, who's live on the ground in Frankfurt, Germany, a country that's the focal point of this crisis. Brian? Yeah, yeah, Kelly, hi. It's been the UK. It's why we're in the UK talking about sort of the same thing. Obviously, that was before the war. That was back in November. I know that 15% does not sound like a lot, but I want you to put that into perspective. I mean, take 15% of a year. Effectively, that is, what, six weeks or a month and a half of total energy consumption that countries in the EU are going to be voluntarily asked to pull back on 15%. I mean, that is actually a massive number. And I gave sort of the air quotes with voluntary, Kelly, because there's also a provision in the proposal where they would basically say you have to do it, that they could actually force it if this proposal passes. So it may not be as voluntary as some think. And even a 15% cut, you could maybe shave, what, percent, a percent and a half off GDP, the European economy, Kelly, is as big as America. Take one and a half percent off the American economy, you're gonna see corporate earnings fall, and you could very well see the stock market fall. We should start maybe getting some flow data tomorrow as early as 6 a.m. Berlin time. It may be the market event, really not of the week, but of the month and one of the key events of the year. Brian, the numbers are so shocking when we look at some of the inflation data. It's pretty terrifying when you read about what could happen going into the winter. What's it like in terms of the mood when you speak with people there? I, that's what I'm most curious about. Are all of these headlines overblowing the real danger on the ground, or are people really nervous? I mean, well, people here in Frankfurt, right, there's some dancing going on. I mean, they're trying to say they're not nervous, but they are nervous. I mean, the guys at the steel mill that we talked to, we didn't put them on camera, but we had Plenty of time. We were at the steel mill in Lagerfeld earlier today. They're, of course they're worried. This is their career. What if the government says to them, you need to shut down this steel mill. You use too much power. Maybe they get furloughed for a couple weeks with pay. That's one thing. But what if entire industries or companies, Kelly, are shut off for a couple of months or longer? This ECB, EC proposal, European Commission proposal, is for eight months, not for eight days, not for eight weeks, but for eight months. This is the real deal, and it affects U.S. markets as well. A lot of people are saying, why is Sullivan over there? It's a long way away. It's not the U.S. It has to do with the U.S. because you have huge percentages of sales from S&P 500 companies, Kelly, that go to Europe. If the European economy takes a huge hit, if Germany, the fourth biggest economy, takes a hit because of energy, what do you think is going to happen with corporate earnings in the United States? They're going to take a hit. Small anecdote, by the way. Um, Things like this. Heat wave. Maybe you want to take your kids to the pool. A lot of community pools in Germany are closing because they can't afford the energy to run the water pumps. Wow. And they're talking in some towns about turning like basketball arenas into warming centers for elderly and vulnerable people because they're so worried they won't be able to afford their bills. Quick, they had to learn about the German energy system. It, ro it generally rotates every 12 months. So right now people aren't getting hit. But at the end of the year, it is very likely that people's energy bills will triple. Millions cannot afford to heat their homes, like in the UK, 
And I know it doesn't get a lot of attention, but far more people die of cold than of heat. You know, I wonder as well, Brian, because a lot of this goes back, obviously, to Putin's war on Ukraine, is his long game, as I've read, it's suggested to basically foment populist political reactions uh, by when people realize these bills or can't take it in a few more months time or what have you and and turn and maybe throw their governments out. I mean, that's why we're watching events in Italy so closely. So I don't know if if there's any way to gauge the mood there. But do you hear people upset at their leadership over this? Darn right. Absolutely. In fact, I mean, okay. so Boris Johnson out now. He had other issues. I get it. But let's be clear. Nine point four percent inflation. Energy a part of it. That's part of the story. Mario Draghi hanging on by a thread in Italy. You could see other things happen on the drive down here from Cologne to Frankfurt. uh, By the way, the ECB decision is from here from Frankfurt tomorrow. Steve Leeson will be hitting that. We spoke with a representative from another, not Germany, but another major EU bloc and their energy minister's office. And I'm going to tell you this much. What they said was they think Putin's goal is to fracture the EU using energy as the wedge. Basically get every nation to kind of say, yo, you know, uh, we're sorry, Germany, but we're France or we're the Netherlands or we're Spain. And sort of it becomes this every country for itself type scenario. Sure. Driving that wedge in using energy. Oh, and by the way, I'll say this. If if you ask me to guess on what the outcome will be based on every conversation I've had, and there's other reports too, I think the flow does restart tomorrow. Probably not more than 20%. Putin kind of said as much in in Iran overnight, by the way. And he may, he started talking about Nord Stream 2. Like, in other words, well, Nord Stream 1's got problems. Maybe you need Nord Stream 2, which is, you know, done but has never been activated. Right. He's playing a lot of games here, Kelly, a lot of games. Well, I'm very, very like, glad that you're there. Brian, we really appreciate it. I know you'll be there for a few more days still, and there's a lot more to come, uh, but it does help give us a sense of what's happening. Yeah. Brian Sullivan Tomorrow. in Frankfurt for us today. Good day. Let's turn now to the investor angle where higher prices are clearly bullish for energy stocks, but rationing and shortages, typically the opposite. Let's bring in Dan Pickering. He's founder and CEO of a CIO, I should say, of Pickering Energy Partners. Dan, what's your response um, to all of this? You've just heard Brian describe and this very different kind of bull market, if you want to call it, that we're in, especially given that we're basically in a bear market in oil in the last few weeks anyway. Sure, Kelly. Energy as a weapon, uh, not not something that's fun to talk about. Uh, when we look at the U.S., we're, we're in a bit better situation, right? We have a lot of gas. We're exporting gas. And so we're, we're not going to be in the same situation as Europe. We are benefiting from higher prices. We, the industry, uh, that's going to flow through to our consumers and our uh, population as we move through our winter. But uh, right now, it's it's bullish for U.S. natural gas prices, and it's bullish for uh, U.S. energy stocks. Our net gas prices have still just about doubled probably year to date or over the past year. So um, we've seen stocks of big producers move accordingly. But if we see further moves to restrict our exports, for instance, would that be a problem? Well, what we've seen is is restricting imports and bottlenecking a commodity, whether it's products or gas, uh, would, would be a negative for price. We've seen that the Freeport LNG facility had a problem, uh, restricted their their exports, and we saw price come down temporarily. So, uh, yes, if we reduce our exports, that's a bad thing for price. But uh, generally, we're going to be part of the, the energy solution, the energy security solution for Europe, and that's going to play out over the next three or four years. And so, you know, that's generally bullish for price. And should we just run through the list? I mean, 
Is there any reason why people shouldn't feel comfortable betting on stocks like Antero, EQT, Chesapeake uh, to participate in further gains and for the net gas price to rise further from here as well? Sure. When you look at that, um, these stocks are very inexpensive, two to three times cash flows and generating free cash yields in 23 of, of 20 percent plus. So they're inexpensive and they've got this tailwind from a, a macro perspective. So it feels like they're a good place to be. Energy is not particularly popular with with the market right now, but uh, the underlying fundamentals are strong and, and the stocks are cheap. So it feels like a good place to, to continue to have exposure. What would you do on the oil side of this? Especially, look, we know the president wants to push things in a clean energy way and will probably uh, pursue means like a further windfall tax or something to that effect if they have to, if they feel like prices go back up and the consumer isn't responding well to that. Yeah, oil names, I think, are still part of an energy portfolio for sure, because they're also inexpensive and we've got a tight oil market. I think there's more political risk around oil and you've got an overhang of energy transition. Natural gas is going to be a longer term part of the answer. Right. The EU just said natural gas is part of the green solution. So uh, gas has probably more favorable, you know, 15 year trends. But in, in the near term, you know, both oil and gas stocks, I think, make a lot of sense. Uh, to be involved in. All right, Dan, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Dan Pickering with WTI Crude back Thank over you. 104 a barrel. And President Biden is set to announce a set of new executive actions this afternoon aimed at curbing climate change and promoting clean energy. Renewable stocks, they've held up a little better than the broader market this year, but are still down since January. Could they get some new life? Pippa Stevens is here with more. What are we expecting out of this, Pippa? Well, Kelly, first up, you know, the climate crisis was a huge part of Biden's presidential campaign. But many of those goals have been sidelined, and we can see that reflected in renewable energy stocks. Take a look at this chart of the ICLN, which tracks a broad range of clean energy names. And you can see the upward momentum out of the pandemic through when Biden was elected in November 2020 and all the way to January 2021 when Democrats took control of the Senate. But it's been downhill since then. The administration's been unable to move things forward, leading to, as one person told me, deep pessimism on the policy front. Add in supply chain bottlenecks and rising rate fears, and there are many, many hurdles. But on the flip side, we've got surging fossil fuel prices, a grid that can't keep up, and more and more extreme weather events. Sunrun CEO Mary Powell telling me demand for solar systems is off the charts. Still, these stocks have been hammered. TPI composites more than 70% below its 52-week high. Fuel cell energy, plug power, Sunrun, Sonova, Ray Technologies, Kelly, all down more than 50%. Sure, the bigger news seems to be Senator Manchin saying, you know, let's not move forward with a big congressional piece of this, which I imagine would have been far more significant than whatever President Biden is going to announce. Absolutely. That was there, the Biden administration's hallmark legislation. There was more than $300 billion in the BBB for climate crisis goals. And that's now been sidelined. And so Biden's power has really been diminished here. He could declare a national state of emergency on the climate crisis, but we've heard he's not going to do that today. So that is still a tool available to him. There are smaller things they can target. There's also the hope that some of the tax credits could be extended because that has received bipartisan support and was last extended in 2020. So, you know, all hope is not lost. 
But Senator Manchin opposing the BBB, at least for now, is definitely a big hurdle for the group. All right. We will see what the president says. But uh, to your point, much smaller and the stocks obviously showing that as well. Pippa, thanks. Our Pippa Stevens. Coming up, while stocks haven't quite found their footing, the Fed is hiking and the economy may be slowing, our market strategist says it's time to look on the bright side. You can pick up some companies with lasting resilience for very cheap. He'll explain next. Plus, the earnings parade rolls on with Tesla and United Airlines reporting after the bell today and D.R. Horton in the morning. We have the story and the numbers to watch ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Let's keep an eye on the markets. The Dow is now down 110 points, but the Nasdaq remains up eight-tenths of a percent. And 20-year bonds went up for auction top of the hour. Rick Santelli tracking the results for us. How'd it go, Rick? It went spectacular. I gave it an A. The only reason I didn't give it an A plus is it had a couple of negatives, but it had so many more positive. Look at an intraday chart of 20-year bonds. You can see the yields dropped at 1 o'clock Eastern. Let's go through it. 14 billion 20-year bonds, the 27th auction of that 20-year maturity. The yield, 3.42, several basis points below the when issue market. Second highest yield ever for 20-year, last month being the highest at 3.488. This is 3.42. And we had a bit of a weak bid to cover. We had a bit of a weak uh, direct bidding at only 14.1%, but the other two categories, indirect bidders and dealers, dealers took the smallest takedown out of all 27, and the indirects was the strongest out of all 27. Those categories propelled it to an A. If you were gonna buy into a treasury auction, wouldn't you buy the maturity that had the largest yield by 26 basis points? I hear you say yes. That's Kelly, the thing, Rick, that's so fascinating. 3.43% on a 20-year. Why is the 10-year yield relatively so much lower than the rest of the curve? It's called liquidity. You know, the 20-year is a bit of a three-legged stool. The other maturities are deeper. They have bigger auctions. They're easier to buy and sell, especially at a time where Treasury liquidity is actually getting a bit on the thin side under QT. True. People are a little worried about that. Rick, thank you. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli. Thank you. 
While the stock market has been moving higher in the past few weeks, it's got a long way to go before returning to a steady state. But my next guest is optimistic and says this is a great opportunity to buy steady names at low prices. Alan Boomer joins me now. He's chief investment officer at Momentum Advisors. Good to see you again, Alan. Give me an example of what you think uh, is a, an opportunity people should pounce on these days. Sure. I mean, I think you've got to think about some of the good things that are going on, right? There's so much bad news. Like, who who wants to hear more bad news? Like, we're the market's really overlooking so much of the good news. The, the biggest thing is the consumer. Our consumers in the U.S. are really in a strong position. We've got low household uh, debt debts to pay. We have high cash balances. You know, look at even the J.P. Morgan results, which just showed that consumers the balances are high, wages have grown. So Consumers are, are really in a strong spot right now. Okay, so what stocks do you like as a result? Sure, so I really like big tech. You know, if you look at what's going on right now, you know, everyone had been talking about value stocks. They had been talking about energy and food. And I think tech has been overlooked and there's so much of the bad news that's already priced in. One of my favorite names right now is Meta. Meta really just got hammered in the last 12 months. And it's a great business. Like they've, they've got some challenges. I think their results are going to be a bit volatile in terms of their ad revenue. But I just look at the valuation. Meta's trading at something like 13 times uh, earnings, trailing earnings. It's almost 10 times. If you look at what we expect future earnings to be, I see a tremendous amount of value in a business that has some really strong growth engines. They've got the Instagram business, sure. the Reels business, and, you know, again, they're investing in the metaverse as well. It's interesting, though, you know, Google, according to the information, is uh, going to halt hiring for a few weeks or slow it. We've heard the same uh, from Apple. We've heard the same from uh, Microsoft, from a number of big tech companies. What do you read into that if you're bullish on the stocks here? Yeah, I think companies are just trying to manage their margins. They're trying to manage their expenses. They want to generate what's called operating leverage. That's when you keep your expenses the same but grow your revenue base, right? And I, I think it's smart. There's a lot of signs that are pointing to a recession, you know, a lot of signs. I mean, you look at the, the yield curve, you look at the stock market, you look at, uh, you know, all sorts of metrics. And so I think, you know, a smart CEO or CFO is going to make some really uh, conservative decisions around expenses in this sort of environment. But it doesn't negate all the good news that, again, as you, you drive around and you see people spending money, that's still a good environment for stocks. No, and I take your point that this time around, you see that as expense management maybe and not so much a sign of, um, of worse to come. Alan, we'll leave it there. Thank you, sir. Great. Thanks Alan for having me. Boomer on Resilient Tech. He's sticking with it. Still ahead, Chipotle shares are down 30% from their recent highs, and the restaurant is now fighting more than just high avocado prices. We will explain. Plus, Beijing's got a big tech problem that could ripple through the whole country's economy. We'll take you inside the so-called Silicon Valley of China and explain the stocks at risk. We're back after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are near session lows. Dow was down 180. It's down 105. But this kind of weaker tone this afternoon could be accounted for by the headlines out of Italy, uh, where they're continuing to struggle to try to keep the government together under Draghi. There's implications for how that might constrain the European Central Bank, for instance, which is supposed to raise uh, half a point maybe tomorrow. Can they do that in light of all of this? We'll see. The S&P up six points. The Nasdaq still strong, up nine-tenths of one percent today. The gaming stocks are also in the green after authorities in Macau said casinos there will be allowed to reopen on Saturday. The city went into lockdown nearly two weeks ago amid a COVID outbreak. All non-essential businesses were forced to close. Uh, modest gains that we're talking one, two, three percent. Netflix is still leading the S&P after losing fewer subscribers than Wall Street expected. They even expect to add a net one million new subs this quarter. The shares are now up 30 percent from their recent lows, hanging on to a five percent gain today. And they're still down 70 percent from their recent high last November. Now, on the flip side, the worst performer in the S&P is actually Baker Hughes today, the oil services major, after a big miss on the top and bottom lines. They're blaming that on shortages, supply chain inflation, and the suspension of the Russian business. Shares are on pace for their worst day since June 2020, down 8 percent, a reminder that you can't just invest in this whole sector if you think that oil prices are going up. And of course, lately, uh, they've been struggling to do even that. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for a CNBC News update. Bertha? Hey, thanks very much, Kelly. Here's your news update at this hour. A New York judge ordering Rudy Giuliani, lawyer to former President Trump, to testify next month as a witness before a grand jury. This comes as an investigation into whether or not Trump attempted to undermine the 2020 election results uh, is happening in Georgia. The Army is projecting it will fail to recruit as many troops as it hoped over the next two years, falling short by as much as 40,000 new recruits. In addition to existing financial incentives, the Army has also explored the idea of no longer requiring recruits to have a high school diploma. And fires continuing to burn across southern Europe, sparked by extreme heat for a second day. Nearly 500 firefighters struggling to contain a large wildfire that threatened a suburb outside Athens, Greece, after hundreds of residents were evacuated overnight. And tonight on the news, the First Lady of Ukraine addressing Congress. We'll have the latest at 7 p.m. Eastern. Kelly, back over to you. Thank you very much, Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, profit margins, managing schedules, managing supply chains. Three key issues for three big names on deck with results. We'll get you ready for Tesla, United Air, and DR Horton next. Welcome back. Earnings season is now in full swing. So let's get the action, the story, and the trade on three important names that are about to report in today's earnings exchange. And the first one is Tesla. It's after the bell today. Shares are higher for a sixth straight session, believe it or not, into this print. But they're still down 30% this year. And that's on pace for its first yearly loss since 2016. They do have headwinds, competition, the Elon Musk Twitter issue. Uh, the stock has also fallen on two of its last four reports. Phil LeBeau is here with the story today and CNBC contributor Boris Schlossberg joins us for our trades. He is manager of FX strategy at BK Asset Management. Welcome guys. Phil kick things off for off for us. Is it still about deliveries? 
No, it's not about deliveries because we already have those numbers. We had them three weeks ago, and there might be a small change there. Nothing major. It's about automotive gross margins, X zero emission credits. That's hmm. the key, X zero emission credits. Last quarter, they came in at greater than 30%. This quarter, the street is expecting them to come in at 28.2%. Look, if they come in anywhere between 28 and 29%, I don't think the stock is going to move a lot. If they are materially lower, that's the concern because Elon Musk has said, look, these furnaces are, or these gigafactories in Austin and Berlin, they are furnaces burning money. And that's the reason we're seeing margin compression. We knew that was going to happen when they were starting up the two new plants. That's natural. That's what's expected to happen. But is it greater than expected? I think that's what people will be focused on. Obviously, if there's any change in terms of their guidance for the second half of the year, uh, that would have an impact as well. But it's really going to be what they're noticing on the cost side in terms of those two gigafactories and also, they'll talk about China in terms of production and how much it's come back. All right. And they have raised price quite a bit. Uh, those operating margins you mentioned are fantastic, really. But, Boris, you're a bear on the stock, aren't you? Why? I'm a bear long term on the stock because I think Tesla ultimately is the Cisco of our time. It's it's a good company whose stock is just way out of whack to its, to its actual valuation. And I have this sneaking suspicion, maybe I'll pay dearly for saying it, but I don't think you'll ever see 1200 again, just like Cisco uh, took 20 years to never mm -hmm. see its highs again. But in the more immediate future, yeah, I totally agree with Phil. It's really about cash flow. The market was looking for about 2 billion. Now they're just looking for 500 million cash flow. If that number is even lower, um, as he said, Berlin and, and Austin are, are big cash burners. And most importantly, it's really big. It's China. It's, it's the Shanghai factory. It's the very, very productive factory that needs to come back as soon as possible to 100% capacity. That's the big question. How are they going to guide that? What's going to what's happening there? And also, obviously, COVID, always an existential question in China. All of those things could really have a big material impact. So my view is stock rallies, my impulse would be to fade the rally if it rallies a post news. He's not going to be on the call. Is he, Phil, Elon Musk? You never know. He said in the past that in the future he may not be on calls if he doesn't feel there's anything relevant to discuss. And he has been much more muted when he has been on these calls, I'd say, over the last four to six quarters, Kelly. I mean, gone are the days, maybe they'll come back, but gone are the days when he would pop up on the call and who knew? what he was going to say. I, I think if he's on this call, I wouldn't expect big fireworks statements. Uh, he has been much more reserved. Uh, quickly, Boris, if the Twitter or when the Twitter drama comes to an end, does that make you more bullish on Tesla? I mean, has that been a big part of its, uh, has that been a big overhang for the stock this year? It's, it's definitely an overhang, and it continues to be, I think, a much more negative overhang, both from just a brand equity point of view, because I think it's damaged his reputation quite a lot, and also from the fact that it looks like Delaware Chancery Court is just not going to put up with it. I mean, it is a very real possibility they could make him pay a lot of money. That just that event by itself could have a negative impact on Tesla because it would force him to sell some stock. All right, fair enough. Both of you stay right there. Let's turn from Tesla which uh, to United, I should say, which also reports after the bell today, and the shares are trying for a fourth straight day of gains. Uh, United believe it or not, is actually down only 5% this year. Pretty good. Demand is through the roof as folks look to travel again, but it hasn't been immune to staffing and cost challenges, obviously, that have plagued the airline industry. Phil, what are you watching for? Uh, what's going to ultimately come in when the earnings are reported? Remember what we saw last week from Delta, and it missed by a pretty wide margin because of the issues with uh, the scheduling, the staffing challenges, operational issues, as well as jet fuel coming in greater than expected? What do we hear from United? Uh, and frankly, is this 
a continuation of what we might expect for the rest of the airlines when they report their Q2 numbers. And then what's the booking picture beyond Labor Day? Yes, we know that there is massive demand all the way through Labor Day. Beyond Labor Day, what are they expecting? And what's happening with their transatlantic growth? Remember, they added so many flights, expanded their schedule, and there's great demand going over to Europe. But, Kelly, I was just in the U.K. It's an absolute mess over there. Flying out of the U.K. is an absolute mess. And as these stories come out, does that make people think twice about whether it's to Britain or to somewhere else, thinking twice about booking a trip in the fall? It must or maybe just takes the edge off business travel, which is more lucrative, as we know. Phil, we know you're also going to be speaking with the CEO. We look forward to that. He'll have an exclusive interview uh, with United Airlines CEO Scott Scott Kirby today on Fast Money. Boris, you're bullish on the stock. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a long-term bullish, but I totally, uh, you know, sympathize with all the issues that Phil has brought up. I actually spoke to some UAL road warriors who tell me they now plan two days for any trip they make because they expect the flights to be canceled, which is really incredible as a a travel experience, if you can imagine. It's like the best of times and the best and the worst of times for the airlines because of the staffing shortages. That having been said, unless you forecast a very deep recession and demand falls off the cliff, I have to believe that all of this rationalization of costs, all of this ability to essentially operate at in max capacity with a much leaner staff in the long run is going to really pay off uh, quite well for the company. And I think um, as long as we have a relatively a soft slowdown, demand remains relatively buoyant, they'll be able to work out their problems. And ultimately, it should be a, probably a $50, $60 stock going forward as their cash flows really materially improve. Yeah, 41 right now, less than an eight times forward PE, but obviously a, a lot of headwinds, micro and macro to navigate. Uh, Phil, thank you. We appreciate it. Our Phil Abo and Boris stick around for our third one today, which is the home builder DR Horton. They report in the morning. The shares are down more than 30 percent this year with rising rates, inflationary pressures on the housing market. And it's been a mixed bag post results. It's risen twice and dropped twice on its past four reports. Diana Olick with the story here. Diana, you know, I can't wait. What, What are you looking for? Well, Kelly, look, this is going to be the first of the big home builders to report in what has really been the heart of the downturn in this housing market. And it has the broadest market share. It's the largest home builder in America. And it also has that Express Homes unit, which we'll be watching very closely because that's its most affordable brand that a lot of the other builders don't have. But we're also going to be looking at supply chain issues as well. We'll see that in the deliveries numbers. And we will be watching very closely for that cancellation rate because we've heard a lot of talk about cancellation in both the existing home sales market as well as among the builders. We've gotten some numbers, but we haven't seen the builders really report big cancellations yet. So that's what we're going to be watching. But the expectation is, again, for strong sales for Horton because, again, they do have that lower price point. They are still seeing demand, and they have that very broad geographic footprint, Kelly. There's my favorite data point, 4.33. That's the forward PE. Boris, would you be a buyer here? I'm wincing here just because... um, (laughs) Definitely long term, they're amazingly well positioned, but I still think they're just vulnerable to a, to a cyclical uh, downshock here, simply because the Fed, I don't think, is finished with a rate hike cycle. Um, if we project into the end of the year, it means mortgage rates could spike back up above the you know 7% level. That's going to make affordability so problematic for such a large swath of the U.S. population. I, I, I forgot the numbers, but I, they're well above 50% now that are already essentially blown out of the market because of affordability issues. And that's going to make demand much more problematic. I think they're still very, very vulnerable to further rate hikes. And that's why I would stand back at this point or, you know, sell puts against it and just just take it a 
right. lower price. You don't, I definitely like it. But I take yeah. all of that and I say, isn't it priced in? It's trading at four times forward earnings. It, you know, when stocks are priced that low, they can stay that low for quite a long time. They could even compress even lower if the uh, the data gets worse. That's, I guess, my, my point. Yeah. I just the point is that the Fed could really spoil the party for them. Um, I, you know, I, I just think the risk here is is too great for uh, for the entry. But maybe right. be wrong. All right. Well, I again, I, I eagerly await. Uh, not, I mean, it's not just about today and what happens, but really in the months to come, which what what happens to these builder names. Diana, thank you. Our Diana Olick reporting, and Boris, thank you for all of our picks and trades today. Boris Schlossberg. Coming up, Chinese internet stocks handily outperforming the tech sector since April, but now Chinese tech names could be facing a big problem. We're live in Beijing with what investors need to know before jumping in. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back, everybody. China Internet ETF, the K-Web, up more than 15 percent the past three months. But if you're considering hopping back into these names, you may want to think twice. Yunus Yun is in Beijing with a look at why. Investors wanting to jump back into Chinese tech stocks may want to look at these offices in Beijing's Silicon Valley. Many are empty. Regulatory crackdowns and a slowing economy combined have undercut China's tech sector which traditionally has attracted and employed many young Chinese. This tech hub for China, known as Zhongguancun, is now shedding workers. Most companies won't confirm specifics, but Tencent and Baidu have acknowledged layoffs. Executives and former and current employees told CNBC other companies like Didi, Meituan and Kuaishou are downsizing too. Until a couple of weeks ago, video sharing giant Kuaishou had multiple offices in this building, including this one. You could even see the outline of its logo still etched on the wall. Today, zero. Kuaishou says the move is unrelated to job cuts. Didi and Meituan declined to comment. The trouble in China's tech sector is a big reason why youth unemployment is at an all-time high, above 19 percent. IT worker B.A. Pan says he survived two rounds of job cuts at his startup since the start of the year. No one is thinking about jumping to other places, he says. Everyone is putting up with their current job as long as they can because it's too hard to find a job. A recent survey by a local recruitment firm found that half of those looking for a job reported layoffs at their current employer and 70 percent felt unsafe in their jobs. But companies themselves have been reluctant to discuss layoffs. The topic is very politically sensitive as the government looks to manage the economy and stabilize the job market despite COVID lockdowns. Kelly? And yet, Eunice, wouldn't you think tech in general would benefit from pandemic closures in the long run and people having to rely on the internet or increase their exposure and adoption to it? Yeah, that's right. And that did happen early on in the pandemic. But the new regulations have hit uh, so many areas of technology, online education, uh, live streaming, video gaming, food delivery. So it's really limited. Those rules have really limited the ability of these companies to expand their business um, and have limited their business in terms of expansion. There have been several big companies uh, that have had to shrink their investment arms. And then the, there's the overall consumption picture, which really doesn't help. Uh, people are very concerned about their incomes as well as their jobs. And in that kind of environment, Chinese 
tend to save rather than spend. Kelly. Great point. Eunice, thanks as always for your time, especially at this hour for us. Eunice Yoon in Beijing. Still ahead, are we heading into a major slowdown in buyback activity? One of the key pillars of this market in recent years. Brian Reynolds shares his worry spots next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stock buybacks have been a major pillar of the bull market, not just this time around, but going all the way back to 2008. But now, could buyback activity be drying up? Big buyback names have been losing momentum lately, a trend that could worsen in the back half of this year. Joining me now is Brian Reynolds. He is Reynolds Strategy Chief Market Strategist. It's great to see you again, Brian. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. What is flashing uh, some concern for you? Because normally I go to you to be reminded of the importance and strength and presence of buybacks, but not right now. Well, this is a really complex investment environment, probably the most complex environment of most people's lifetimes. And the buybacks have been the biggest pillar of stock prices in the last year or so. But that's been offset somewhat by retail investors slowing and institutional investors becoming very, very bearish. I think we may be nearing a point where stocks in general start to go up because of the buybacks. And if that happens, there's going to be a lot of disbelief on Wall Street. And that's the type of environment where institutions sell the names buying back the most stocks. S&P has an index, the buyback index, and it's losing momentum now. And I think in the fall, it could start to underperform. And I think it makes sense to sell into strength now with an idea of buying on weakness this winter. Has there been any change in the pace of corporate buybacks? They've been setting records. They, uh, the fourth quarter and the first quarter numbers uh, each hit a record. They may have pulled back a little bit in the second quarter. But the reason why stocks are down is because the selling from institutions has overwhelmed those buybacks. I don't think, that's, I don't think that selling can go on forever. I think we're in some type of a multi-month bottoming process. If stocks get above the S&P 4018 area, I think that's an area of significant resistance. Then I think that starts at least a, a large bounce up in the fall. And again, I think people will fight that and probably sell the buyback names. Yeah. So you, why do you think this could get worse before it gets better? And I'm specifically talking about the underperformance of these big buyback names. Well, they've actually outperformed this year in the downturn. So if we do get a rise in general stock prices, I would expect them to lag again, because people just don't believe the buybacks are going to persist. There's so much negativity out there. Uh, Bank of America's monthly survey showed that sentiment is at the worst levels in at least 20 years in the institutional side of the business, even worse than it was in 2008. But the credit market's still providing money for buybacks. In the first two days of this week, investors bought 40 billion, more, almost 40 billion of new corporate bonds. Much of that money is going to go to buybacks. Wow. It just won't probably be reflected in the stock's names because people will take that money and distribute it elsewhere. That is so interesting. And again, so it, it reminds us that buybacks are still happening. They're still strong. It's just that big money investors are so pessimistic, they're overwhelming that effect and uh, kind of pushing a lot of these names lower. What about retail? You've highlighted the retail presence in this market has been a real thing, almost import, as important as buybacks. Retail sounds a little more bullish than uh, the institutional side these days. Is that providing any offset? I would characterize retail as having gone from really hot in 20 and 21 when we last talked about that to more of a neutral this year. Some of the more aggressive retail investors have had to pull in their horns. They've had margin calls and they're actually, if you look at the options market, it's not as frothy as it was at this time a year ago. 
On the other hand, traditional retail investors have picked up the pace a little bit by putting money into ETFs. So net-net, that's probably a neutral right now, where it was a significant positive a year ago. So you've got that split between buybacks, retail, and institutions. And that's why this year has been so difficult to yeah. trade. And that, the final question I have for you is, what do you think is the biggest difference in this market environment versus 2008 if you don't see the same risks um, that obviously caused the market to crash last time around? This is very different from 2008. It's nowhere near as bad. In 2008, I was pointing out about how pension funds, the biggest buyer of credit, were being forced to sell credit with margin by getting margin calls they couldn't meet. Now it's the opposite. As I just pointed out, we did $40 billion in two days of new corporate bonds. Today is going to be another large day of issuance where investors are scooping up corporate bonds in a wide variety of industries. That's a big difference. That's the difference between going down for six months and then gradually coming back and having a year and a half to two year financial disaster. This is not a disaster. And institutional investors, if they are listening to you, maybe we'll get less pessimistic and stop pushing these uh, stock prices lower. Brian, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Brian Reynolds. Coming up, the Chipotle employees behind unionization efforts at the chain. They said they were inspired by the organized labor push at Starbucks. But was Chipotle C-suite also inspired? The fight heating up at one East Coast restaurant next. Welcome back. Before we go, check out shares of Chipotle higher today after the company closed a restaurant in Maine. Kate Rogers is here with more on why this closure could be a little controversial, Kate. Hey, Kelly, Chipotle closing down a location in Augusta, Maine, and the move is getting some attention as that store had filed a petition with the NLRB seeking to unionize. The company says the store is being closed as it has been plagued with excessive callouts, staffing challenges, and lack of ability from its existing staff. It had been closed to the public since June 17th, but Chipotle said that it was kept open for training in order to keep paying employees. The company adding, quote, closing the Chipotle restaurant in Augusta, Maine has nothing to do with union activity. Our Operational management reviewed this situation as it would any other restaurant with these unique staffing challenges. Chipotle respects our employees' rights to organize under the National Labor Relations Act. Now, the store's workers will receive severance pay and assistance finding new jobs. But the union says this is retaliatory, claiming that they took this action against them for seeking to organize. The workers there held a rally last night, and I spoke to organizer Brandy McNeese, who told me the union's top three concerns with the store were crew safety, food safety, and short staffing. McNeese adding, quote, by shutting the store completely all they are doing is fueling us. They say they're filing an unfair labor practice charge with the NLRB. Chipotle workers say they've drawn inspiration from Starbucks Workers United, but so far only two stores with Chipotle have filed petitions to organize, whereas Starbucks is well over 200 at this point, Kelly. Do you know what the other location is, Kate? And I guess we'll find out whether management has you know, just responded to the unionization effort or not, if other locations unionize and whether or not they respond, they can't close every Chipotle. The other petition is in Lansing, Michigan, and they're associated with the Teamsters Union. This Chipotle United is not associated with a larger union at this point, although it's been drawing support from the AFL-CIO and others. Um, Starbucks, we should note, has also closed down some stores and cut hours. And similarly, it had said it was the same issue with staffing and not having enough staff to um, be able to continue operations. Their union also called that union busting as well. And it's important to note the NLRB in Buffalo issued a sweeping complaint against Starbucks in May uh, that's now in its trial phase that basically claimed it retaliated against workers seeking to organize by closing down the store. So what happens from here is that 
if Chipotle uh, Workers United does file this this claim with the NLRB, it's up to the NLRB to decide and kind of look at the evidence and see if they're on Chipotle's side or the union side. And we'll see if the stock struggles as Starbucks has as this effort moves along. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.